Welcome to the continuing journeys of the Starman. It's Starman, folks, the show where we take the worst matches in wrestling history, according to Dave, to court, and we find them guilty or not guilty of earning the negative star ranking that was placed upon them by sports entertainment legendary demigod journalist Mr. Meltzer. I am Johnny C. You know that because it's the Aqua Cave. I'm not going to waste any of your time with the intros, but I appreciate you coming back as always. Today we're continuing the negative two star journey. It's part four. And boy, there are, when you take a look at this list, folks, I'm just telling you now, there are going to be many, many episodes of negative two, but that's okay because I love doing it. I know you love listening to it. We're back in the early 90s this go-round. We're going to cover two very specific years. Obviously, I guess every year is specific because uh, 1997 is only 1997, for example. So my shtick doesn't work. But we're going to be dealing with 1992 and 1993. So again, continuing our journey. I was going to say our journey in the early 90s, but I said journey in the early it's early in the early. Sounds like it should have been a 1992 New Jack Swing song. Early in the jerly, going to the dance with my girl. It's in my hair, bro. I said the New Jack Swing coming at you. All right, I think that's enough singing for now. But we're going to start in the future. Because the past, that being the two matches from 1992, not only come from the same event, but, man, it comes from a special special event in Johnny C's lifelong journey as a professional wrestling fan. So we're going to end with that. We're going to start on Wednesday. Whoa, wrestling on a Wednesday in 1993? What could this possibly mean? It can mean only one thing. It's Wednesday, November 10th, 1993, and it's time to turn to the Beastmaster Station, TBS, for the Clash of Champions 25, live from St. Petersburg, Florida. As always, before we go to the judge to present the evidence, we like to give a little bit of context about where this match is trying to come from, and so we're going to do just that. I've been on this kick of sort of like Googling and looking into what was going on in the time in the real world during these uh, shows and matches that I talk about. The number one song in America on this date was the fucking power anthem by Meatloaf. I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. And because I love my fans so much, I will indeed review or take this match to court, even though I don't want to, because who could give a fuck less about this matchup? And you'll know why when I tell you the participants. One of them, okay, one of the participants, legend. The other one, eh. It's the case of Ravishing Rick Rude versus Road Warrior Hawk for the WCW International World Heavyweight Championship. Now, I think it's probably obvious that Ravishing Rick Rude is the legend and Hawk is sort of the, eh, I mean, I guess a legend in in a couple of different ways, I suppose. But I will say this about the Hawkster. Not the Hawkster, the Hawkster. Hawk's 
devastating lariat finishing maneuver in World Championship Wrestling for the Nintendo Entertainment System was my go-to when playing that game. And so I guess the Road Warrior always has a soft spot in my heart. And Jesus, what a fucking game that was. Did you guys ever play World Championship Wrestling for the Nintendo Entertainment System? I mean, it's... Okay, so I, I didn't play. It's interesting to me. You look at the two ga- um, WrestleMania, the Nintendo game versus WCW, the Nintendo game. The games could not be more different in their presentation and the way that they approach professional wrestling. And I think it's so indicative of the two different mindsets of the two different companies at the time. And this is coming to me in real time, so I apologize if it's not coherent. But you think about that. If you ever played WrestleMania for the Nintendo, it's like the moves, uh, you know, most wrestlers share the same move sets, okay? There's not really much customization. Um, the whole presentation of the matches is like a bombastic rock and roll sort of thing. The music changes as the tempo of the match changes. Uh, the music are 8-bit reproductions of, like, wrestling theme songs or Stand Back or Girls in Cars and shit like that. And then random power-ups pop across the screen, uh, indicating that you are not actually simulating a wrestling match, but you're in some sort of fever dream arcade version of a wrestling match. Whereas over in the WCW game, not only is the roster composed of guys who are strangely not these larger-than-life personalities, you know, you've got, like... I don't know, like Eddie Gilbert, and I'm not throwing shade, it's just like, look at the WCW roster, you've, you've got like Mike Rotunda, Kevin Sullivan, Eddie Gilbert, Michael Hayes, and, and that's fine, that's very Southern wrestling, and then you've got Hulk Hogan, Macho Man, Andre the Giant, Ted DiBiase, Bam Bam Bigelow, okay, and I forget, I'm forgetting some Honky Tonk Man, uh, you know, it's just... It couldn't be more of a contrast, and I think that makes it so fucking interesting. It's not something I thought about, and it feels like an entirely different podcast I should do. Uh, And then over on the WCW Nintendo game, you get to pick what moves you want your character to do, and their traditional wrestling moves is like the Cobra Twist, the Backbreaker. Like, I don't know. It's just, it's very interesting as I'm saying it all out loud. Maybe we'll cover it another time. Uh, Clash of Champions 25, though, starts with a great video package, letting us know that every title was going to be on t- on the line tonight, and it's got that fantastic Clash theme song. We start the show with Mean Gene Okerlund, letting us know that our voices can be heard as long as we're willing to pay for it. Because tonight, you can vote for Manager of the Year on the WCW Hotline. Kids, get your parents' permission. Is it going to be Sir William, Missy Hyatt, Harley Race, or Teddy Long? Interesting side note here. I'm pretty sure that voting in the United States of America will someday be a paid service. So much like they were in the creation of the NWO and their sports-like presentation of professional wrestling, WCW is really ahead of the times here in 1993. Tony Schiavone and Jesse the Body Ventura are going to be on the call tonight. And right as they're introduced, they make some jokes about Jesse parachuting down into the ring. I think they're throwing shade at the fan man, uh, the dude who, like, parasailed into a boxing match. Uh, I just know it because Mo did it on The Simpsons, so whatever. Uh, but they are going to take us into the first case. They toss over to Michael Buffer, who is announcing, because, hey, we got lots of championship matches tonight, and we're greeted with, he's simply ravishing. 
Man, another contrast between the WWF and WCW in this time period. Both promotions coming out with radically different albums containing uh, theme songs involving or about wrestlers. WrestleMania the album or the WCW Slam Jam album. Now look, when it comes to absolute like bangers and all-timers, it's hard to pick a favorite because WCW's has Simply Ravishing, as mentioned. Ricky Steamboat's, which is strangely about his family. Nothing's gonna happen to a family man. And then they got the natural, natural, and he's natural as can be. He's a son of a son. Get in the ring, jump, but don't slump. Couple of blowers, I'm gonna put you on your rump. You know, that Ron Simmons song, and then man costing. And then you could get starterized. I mean, there's more. I'm sure there's tons I'm forgetting. I apologize if I've left out your favorite. But then over at WrestleMania, the album, you've got wrestlers performing as musicians, which again is this great contrast in that WCW's album is a is our songs about their wrestlers that can be their entrance songs because it's something they really didn't have at the time was unique entrance themes. And WWF's is like, ah, these guys aren't just wrestlers, they're entertainers. So let's have Undertaker sing the man in black. I got Native American blood in my veins and I fight in the World Wrestling Federation for all my little braves and all my little braves, little fans, little fans. Tatanka! Buffalo speaking from the heart. Everybody's saying he's fucking quite amazing. He's the macho man. I'm perfect. I'm perfect. I love how Mr. Perfect sort of had like the adult contemporary uh, uh, theme track. You know, it's like. I love your smile. I'm perfect. Uh, and of course, the fucking heart-wrenching, heartbreaking song from the hitman. I don't know if he's singing about someone that he has to assassinate on the job because he's a hitman, but regardless, or if he's singing to his wife about how he's going to go out and get some prostitutes on the road, there's never been a right time. Never was a way. Things you gotta say to break the heart, make a cry. Never been the right time to say goodbye, to say goodbye. Tonight, wearing multiple co- Back to the fucking wrestling. Wearing multiple colors. The master of the rude awakening. And then Ravishing Rick Rude takes the microphone right away from Michael Buffer before he can say his name. I paused it here to take a note, but I noticed that the look on Michael Buffer's face is definitely a man who's saying, I'm still getting paid for saying Ravishing Rick Rude though, right? Rude looks great, as usual, and it's just way too bad that, in my opinion, he's only got a world title around his waist because right now there's two of them. The International World Heavyweight, which is the big gold belt, which Tony Schiavone actually calls it that uh, as the referee puts it up for everyone to look at, and the WCW Actual Heavyweight Championship. So, Rude eventually gives the microphone back to Michael Buffer, and I thought an interesting note he calls him simply ravishing Rick Rude. And I felt like he was getting back at WCW by making them pay for the extra word. Because you know this fucker's getting paid by the word. Cut to a mom in the crowd that has her son on her thighs. She, the son is standing. He's tiny. 
He's wearing a Cactus Jack t-shirt that's about 16 sizes too big for him. And, like I said, he's standing on his mommy's thighs. She is rotating this child hips, this child's hips manually so he can do the Ravishing Rick Rude taunt. It was off-putting, but I'm really glad that I saw it. His opponent in black and gold is a multiple-time tag team champion with his lifetime partner, Animal. And I'm sure the boys in the back had fun with that one. His hetero life mate, Animal. Uh, a little James Island Bob there. Uh, Road Warrior Hawk is in full LOD mode. He's still got the Legion of Doom WWF red shoulder pads. And some poor child went to the trouble of creating a sign that says, World Champ Hawk, the poor kid. Uh, as I mentioned, Tony says, there's the big gold belt. Uh, Tony mentions that the last clash, Dustin Rhodes and Hawk, who was his mystery partner, defeated Ravishing Rick Rude in the Equalizer in a tag match, which I guess sets up this encounter. The bell rings, so order in the court! Now, fans, as you know, here on Starman, I just present the evidence that I gathered while watching the match, and I try to use my inflection to let you know if it's positive or negative. So we start with a face-to-face that results in trash-talking, and Hawk audibly says fuck on TBS. So we're off to a fantastic start. Now, this trash talk and verbal abuse leads to a devastating and violent collar and elbow tie-up. So they must have really said some mean things to one another. One minute in, and the matches consisted of two collar and elbow tie-ups and pushing one another apart. It slowly breaks down into a pose-off. And they have a third lock-up. Luckily, this time... Hawk pushes Rude away, and Rude, in classic Rude form, does a massive oversell. Now, I don't say that to throw shade at the Ravishing One. He's at least getting over the story that Hawk is a powerhouse, and he should probably not take him lightly. So I appreciate that. Oh, for fuck's sakes, though, Hawk wants a test of strength. And the Ravishing One is stalling and tentative, much like he was at WrestleMania 4 that we covered in the archives. Hawk has one arm suspended in the air. He doesn't put it down, and it's suspended for about 45 seconds straight. It's as if the only way that it will get put down is if the heartbreak kid himself, Shawn Michaels, gives him a running high five, just like the dudes with attitudes. Rick Rude goes to lock in the first hand, uh, as, of course, both are required for this Gruckle Roman uh, knuckle lock. But he backs away to stall some more. But thank the maker... Jesse the Body Ventura and Tony Schiavone are on commentary. Of course, commentaries are just fun asides. They don't help with the actual judge's decision. But on commentary, we get, Oh, look at that. The Road Warriors covered in posing oil. Rude can't get a good grip. Posing oil? In a wrestling match? You believe that, Jesse? Why do you telling me, Shivani? You've never gone to your stores? You've never gone to uh, Walmart and bought some posing oil? No, I can't say that I have. You mean you don't go home and pose in front of the mirror for Lois? (laughs) Classic. Rude finally uh, decides, fuck it, I'm just going to punch and kick and chop. And that lasts for about 30 seconds. He goes to ram Hawk's head into the turnbuckle, but Hawk has Samoan head power for some reason. At this point, Ravishing Rick Rude eats 10 turnbuckles by getting his head rammed in 10 times. And look, is that elementary and house showy? Yes, But this is the opener. Okay, so that's a good way to get the crowd engaged. So, it is what it is. Uh, Hawk gets a big back body drop on the Ravishing One. 
And then he just watches Rick Rude wince in pain on the mat, does nothing to follow up, and lets Rude get back to a vertical base, as Jim Ross would say. Um, a suplex, okay. Rick Rude goes on offense, and I think he back gives Hawk a backbreaker. He goes up top, jumps off for I don't know what, because uh, he doesn't go flat to where he could actually like, crush Hawk, and he just eats two boots. Hawk clotheslines Rick Rude over the top and then follows after him. I notice right away that referee Randy Anderson's already on six, when he should probably be on two if it was not a double countout finish. They fuck up, throwing one another into the post, and the ref hits ten. It's a double countout. I mean, look, this isn't even a match, okay? It's just not, in my I mean, it's like the start of a match. Ravishing Rick Rude shouldn't be losing on television when he's the champ. I agree with that, okay? But you absolutely know that Road Warrior Hawk's not losing, because I'm Road Warrior Hawk! I mean, this guy's a a, a well-known dick when it comes to doing the job, okay? So it's just stupid booking this match in general, and it's really fucking stupid putting it on first, in my opinion, because the crowd is absolutely nuclear with the booing. And I guess the saving grace is it's a little bit over five minutes. But it is the opener, and it is for a world title. It should absolutely not have that finish. Um, So I am going to find it guilty, all right? It's not the worst match we reviewed on this show by far. It's not even close. Just because the worst match, which as of this moment in time, is still Hollywood Hogan versus Randy Savage from Uncensored in the Cage, uh, 98, I believe. Because that's 20 minutes. 20 minutes? Whatever. Take two. It's 20 minutes. Uh, There is no finish, and it's a cage match that has to have a finish. And it's boring as fuck. This was also boring, but it's five minutes and whatever. It's just stupid booking. Ravishing Rick Rude. Uh, you know, I was going to give Rude some praise, but no. I, I think he should have been able to put something better together. The illusion of Ravishing Rick Rude as a great wrestler is slowly crippling before my very eyes. But that's going to put a finish on 1993. Let's go back to the future past and look at 1992 for a very, very, very special presentation. Our next two cases are going to take us to April 5th, 1992, in the Hoosier Dome in Indianapolis, Indiana, for WrestleMania 8. But in order to properly tell this tale and why it's so special to me, we've got to go all the way back to the fall of 1991. Um, I don't know what day it was, although I do recall at the time... I was desperately trying to get a hold of a VHS copy of Ernest Scared Stupid. Now, I will admit to this, uh, and I don't know why this memory uh, sticks out so much in my brain. Uh, No, you know what? Hold on. I don't want to misremember it. I think I was trying to convince my parents to take me to see Ernest Scared Stupid. Uh, because I think that came out like in theaters in 91. Anywho, it doesn't matter. Ernest Scared Stupid was on my brain. It was a Saturday, and I know this, you know, wholeheartedly. And my parents sat me and my older brother down, and they said, look, we've got something to tell you. And I was like, oh, Jesus, what did I do this time? And they said, we're going to WrestleMania. And my instant reaction was, what? How? First of all, 
WrestleMania happened already back in March. Okay? I watched it. I, I cried when the Ultimate Warrior destroyed the Macho King. And then when the Macho King reunited with his long-lost love, Miss Elizabeth. <laughs> Excuse me. Anywho. But no, in, in all seriousness, my little brain couldn't really fathom what was going on. I was like, WrestleMania hasn't even been announced yet. Because, you know, they hadn't on television. I don't recall during WrestleMania 7 there was any sort of grandiose trailer for WrestleMania 8. Like they did during the broadcast presentation of WrestleMania 6. Hyping that they'd be in the L.A. Memorial Coliseum. And then they said, yeah, WrestleMania 8 is going to be in Indianapolis. Which was only 90 minutes away from where I grew up. And I was like, WrestleMania is only in big cities. And I'm not throwing shade. All right, I'm not trying to say that I was some sort of brilliant child, but uh, the fact that it was coming to Indianapolis really threw me through a loop. All right, and I had no idea that they had a dome or anything like that. Um, but yeah, it, uh, needless to say, though, I was fucking pumped, but definitely in disbelief. As the build to WrestleMania 8 started to take shape, I was so fucking excited, especially when they had that special episode of weekly or weekend television, like superstars, where they showed the number one contender press conference. The number one contender for the WWF championship has been in consideration for some time. After reviewing careful paper-based documents, we have decided that the number one contender for Ric Flair's WWF championship will be Hulk Hogan. Yes! 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 That's Hulk Hogan being like, yes! That decision was not bogus, in my opinion. So I was stoked that I was going to see Hogan versus Flair, the fucking dream match, all right? Now, I missed the Saturday night's main event confrontation on Fox, where Flair and Undertaker teamed up against Justice and Hogan. So when I eventually caught back up with weekend television, I was completely thrown through a fucking loop, all right? The fact that Hogan was now facing Sid, oh, I was so fucking angry. But, you know, as a kid, I cannot, like, rewrite my own mental history. Like, I I like the Macho Man, obviously, okay? But I was definitely a Hogan guy first, okay? Now, I will say this, okay? And a fantastic example of brand synergy, and I would love to know if anyone else had a similar experience, I'm sitting there watching Superstars, so I'm assuming it's a Saturday, and they do the whole she was mine before she was yours, and he's got the pictures and everything like that, and I was floored. My heart was broken. I could not believe that Miss Elizabeth would do this, okay? Um, and then, like, I was distraught. The show ends. About an hour later, my mom walks in and said, hey, you got some mail, and hands me the WWF magazine that contained the photographs as if to cut even deeper. But I was floored looking back on it that it happened at the same day. Like, that's fucking brand synergy, all right? It's just, look, it's just happenstance, okay? But at the same time, you know, it, it, it made everything feel so real, and it's the little shit like that. Man, it's taken me back. And so the stage is now set. I'm at WrestleMania 8 with pretty fucking good seats. Uh, I'm on the... I'm opposite the hard camera as well, so hypothetically you could have seen me, but I've watched the, the show so many times and I've never seen myself, so go figure. Unfortunately, though, we're not here to talk about the Macho Man versus Ric Flair. Um, we're here to talk about our first case of the day. 
It's for the WWF Tag Team Championships, and it's the case of the Natural Disasters versus Money Incorporated. A little bit of context here before the match starts. Sean Mooney's in the back with the champs, and Jimmy Hart lets the Disasters know that he knows all their weaknesses, baby! Yeah! So he knows that if the earthquake stops moving, he will die. And he knows the typhoon is allergic to walls. So if they toss him through one, his career will be over. That is a shark and a shockmaster joke for all the people who weren't paying attention. DiBiase says, you don't tug on Superman's cape, spit in the wind, or write checks you can't cover. <laughs> now, I understand the first two as a massive comics nerd and an idiot who has spit in the wind. But what is a check? I don't know what that is. Guess what, though? It's tax time! And that's not an awkward transition. That's just what IRS says. Uh, We're not taking you lightly, but rest assured, we are taking you. Great early 90s heel stuff. Kind of reminds me of, we don't want to, we hate to be the ones to say, I told you so, but we told you so. Now to Mean Gene with the Challengers. These two men are facing one another, and their guts are facing off in an epic confrontation. When we get to the backstage area for the interview, they're both just making noises, like... It may be Typhoon Stomach, though, unconfirmed. They jump up and down and slap one another and basically generically say that they're going to win, and uh, as they slap one another, they accidentally knock Gene's microphone out of his hand, but he catches it, showing that he could have easily been a wide receiver for the Indianapolis Colts. Folks, I want to point you to the Peacock stream. And yes, because Bobby Heenan eventually makes fun of this person, I'm sure it's a well-known moment from WrestleMania history, but I had completely forgotten about it because I haven't watched 8 in a while. Because I watched it a lot as a kid, as I'm sure you can imagine, trying to find myself. So it's one of those things I haven't watched a ton as an adult. But at 2 hours and 55 seconds, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Joseph Dierte is in the crowd, all right? Because the camera finds a dude in the crowd that looks like the love child of Vince Russo with a, and Joe Dirt. Because he looks like Russo, but he's got a Joe Dirt mullet. And he has one finger in the air saying that Money, Inc. is number one. And the other hand has what Bobby Heaton calls six $1 bills. But I went back and counted and looked for folds and creases, and I got $9 bills. But regardless, he's just holding up some single digits, all right? Just just some $1 bills. Uh, it is the definition of WrestleMania in Indiana. And, of course, Bobby the Brain, like I mentioned, throws shade at the dude for just using the ones. Uh, He should go back to school and get an education and get a better job. It's fucking brilliant. Here come the natural disasters now. They look pissed. We cut to two ladies at ringside. Now, one of them is indeed the crying Miss Elizabeth girl. The uh, crying, well-dressed Miss Elizabeth girl from WrestleMania 7. The girl who's wearing a dress that's too nice for WrestleMania. And she's crying her eyes out with the red hair. There's a woman next to her who's also wearing a nicer dress, and she has a tiny sign. It's just like a college notebook ruled piece of paper that says natural disasters rule. She should be home doing the dishes. She wouldn't have time to make stupid cards like that. What a bimbo. (laughs) Fucking Bobby's amazing. He's complaining about the noise in the Hoosier Dome. Uh, He pulls the old, I can't hear you. Uh, The bell rings, so we need order in the court. The earthquake and Ted DiBiase start and Quake tosses Ted around like a rag doll. Bobby pops Gorilla by saying Money Incorporated uh, strategy should be to get the natural disasters on their backs like turtles. And, and you hear Gorilla snicker and he's silent for a bit. 
Oh, big double noggin knocker! The heels go outside, and Ted DiBiase faints, leaving already. Like, a minute into the match, he's like, Oh, this is enough. I'm done with this. He throws the hands drastically, like, enough. I'm done. So it sets the seeds for the ending. So I give them credit for that. Now, Earthquake's with IRS, and they're trading wrist locks, but the Earthquake fucking brought his little time card. He clocked in, and he's here to fucking work. He is elbowing the shit out of IRS's arm and, and pounding him as soon as he, like, after every twist, okay? Earthquake is here. He's fast, too. He throws IRS hard into the corner. Oh, no, he doesn't do it. He tags in Typhoon, and Typhoon whips IRS into the corner. IRS takes a flare flop and tries to slide out the ring, but Typhoon, showing he may have a brain, steps on IRS's tie. It's a gimmick that was used a lot with IRS, but it really works here for me. Miscommunication, though, as Typhoon, uh, Ted DiBiase's hanging on the ropes, and Typhoon doesn't know what to do, so he kind of charges at him and stops. He continues charging forward and tries to throw himself over the top rope, but fails and has to redo it. Um, Later, they throw Typhoon into the ropes for an Irish whip, and he doesn't turn, and he whips facing forward and just walks backwards looking like a fucking idiot he takes an awkward double clothesline and barely knows how to sell typhoon is your disaster in peril now look i want to make this very clear once typhoon tags into the ring i'm starting to see the picture painted but i also want to make it very clear that the fucking earthquake came here to work because when he is in the ring he's moving at speeds a man his size shouldn't and he is fired up, as Mark Madden would say. All right. Now, uh, there's a lukewarm tag to Earthquake because the, ta- the, the, the the crowd's just not into this because of the Typhoon Heat segment. It's been really bad. The Quake is working. Like I mentioned, eventually all four men are in. IRS eats a Typhoon splash, tries to pin like an idiot. The Earthquake shouts him out the ring and starts doing his jumps and beating the shit out of IRS. He primes him for the Quake. But the mouth of the South Pole's eyes are IRS out, and they walk away for the countout, and that's the ball game. So look, I have never seen one person bring a match down more than Typhoon the Shockmaster did in this match. This match is boring because of his heat segment, and it's awkward because of his ridiculous botches. I am going to find this match guilty of the negative two star ranking, and the I am letting Ted DiBiase, IRS, and Earthquake walk, and I am remanding Typhoon to custody of the state. He is the reason that this is guilty. Seriously, go back and watch this match, and look, it's not good. It's not three stars. It might be two and a half, your gentleman's two, or whatever. But if Typhoon's not a factor, this match is fine. Absolutely fine. Once Typhoon comes in, the fucking world falls apart faster than the day Trump was inaugurated into office. But we can't leave Indianapolis yet. We have one more big double main event to talk about. And as I'm sure you can all imagine, there is a lot of context here. It is the final match of WrestleMania 8, second half of big double main event as mentioned. Could it potentially be Hulk Hogan's final match? which in retrospect is quite humorous, or will Sid Justice ascend as the next dominant force in sports entertainment? I fast forward a little bit to get to the match. I've gone too far, so I have to rewind a little bit more. And I see the end of the Owen Hart-Skinner match. Not so much the end, but right after Owen gets the three count. 
And I love that after the match is over and Owen Hart's theme music is playing, he, he gets in one more drop kick on the alligator man when Skinner tries to confront him. I don't know. It just, it just cracks me up. And the young version of me who was in attendance, I might add, was super stoked that that match was so short because I had zero interest in it and I just wanted the Hulkster. We cut to the back where Mean Gene Okerlin is with Sid Justice and Dr. Harvey Whippleman. Shut up, you fat, bald-headed little oaf! Now, Mean Gene is little. He's a bit of an oaf. He is bald-headed. I don't know if I'd call him fat, though. I'm not sure what his BMI is because he is a short dude, but I feel like that's a little harsh. And Sid does a really good Sid interview. There's an amazing moment where he's looking at the camera to his left and I don't recall this happening a ton in backstage interviews. It probably did. It was just I was I was paying a lot of attention for this because I knew there was something coming up I really wanted to talk about, so I was really keyed in. And the camera, there's a cut, and he looks to the camera on the right as he says, uh, "What does he say? Oh yeah, he says Hulk Hogan, I am the master. He says I'm the master, and you are but the learner, Hulk Hogan." So is Sid like a massive Star Wars fan? Because famously, that is what Darth Vader uh, calls Obi Wan says to Obi Wan Kenobi in Star Wars Episode Four when they fight for the first time since they fought in Episode Six of Star Wars Obi Wan Kenobi, which you can hear all about in the archives here in the Aqua Cave, where I reviewed all six episodes of Obi Wan Kenobi from Disney Plus on Stream Fighter Two. Cheap plug for that show, but man, I love me some Star Wars. And I would love to hear Sid reviewing Star Wars movies. Like, the dude could make a fortune on YouTube with subscriptions and advertisements if he would just give reviews of Star Wars. He'd be like, Sid, what are your thoughts on the Emperor being resurrected off screen? And he'd look dead in the camera and be like, BOGUS! We flash back to the march to WrestleMania, and it's Hulk Hogan and Vince McMahon on that stage with the pictures. You know it all. And Vince says, Hulk Hogan? The WWF fans would like to know unquestionably, is this your last match? Oh, you know, Vince McMahon, that question makes me sweat. Well, get used to it, Hulk, because you're going to be in a seated position answering difficult questions that make you sweat quite a bit in the near future. So go ahead and just get comfortable. I just won't know until I come out of the ring at WrestleMania. Well... Mr. McMahon, or I'm Vince McMahon, and on behalf of the World Wrestling Federation, thank you for the memories. Either way. We cut back to Sid, who's been watching this, and he yells that it's glorious. And then on the way out, he says, I curse you, Hulk Hogan! I curse you! Now, two things about this. One, I laughed very hard. I'd forgotten that he says this, and it just, it really tickled me. Like, there's so many... I, I know Sid's interviews are easy targets, but I, I liked it, first of all. It made sense, but also his delivery is hilarious. But, after I stopped laughing, I, I really had to think about this. Now, this isn't a spoiler for a match that happened in 1992, but we all know how this match ends, right? With a little bit of outside interference. Maybe a little bit of late outside interference. But who's the man that comes down the aisle to interfere? The voodoo man. Papa Shango, as Gorilla would say. Well, what the fuck? Papa Shango, we know from past experience, is able to put curses on other WWF superstars. 
So unless Sid is a wizard and cursing Hogan himself, the dude is telegraphing what's going to happen. And I've never caught that before. And here I am catching it. And I feel simultaneously intelligent for catching it and simultaneously stupid for never catching it. So what are you going to do? Now we cut back to Gorilla and Bobby, uh, who are not at ringside like they are these days. They're up in a skybox high above the Hoosier Dome. And Gorilla starts pontificating about the immortality of Hulkamania. And, you know, he's like, Hulkamania will live forever, blah, blah, blah. Brain, we need to get down to the ring to see if Hulkamania will live forever. And then there's a beat, and Bobby says, Would you ask me? Because in the middle of Gorilla's little speech, he does say brain, as if he's going to ask him a question. But there's no time. We have to get to the ring. And Bobby the Brain Heenan... I mean, I'm not saying anything new, folks, but goddamn, he's the best. Now, the Fink is trying to announce that the second half of our double main event is going to be occurring, and he's immediately bullied by alleged Dr. Harvey Whippleman. And Harvey Whippleman delivers this amazing uh, ring introduction for Sid Justice as he comes down the aisle to his fantastic. Theme song. You know it. This is the main event at WrestleMania. Yeah, he says Wrestle. What do you want to fight about it? <laughs> Stand up on your feet and show respect to the greatest man in the world, Wrestling Federation. Yeah, he said Wrestling again. Show respect to the man who rules the world. Now, as he says, show respect to the man who rules the world, you would assume his next words would be, Sid justice and Sid thinks this too because he's walking down the aisle and talking to the camera and he says Hulk Hogan you will meet your maker and his name is he says as he says and his name is that's when Harvey says rules the world and then Sid like the rest of us expects to hear Sid justice thus finishing his sentence with Harvey Whippleman's announcement of his name But Harvey just keeps introducing with a few more special words for the Sidster. And so Sid just smiles with a shit-eating grin as Harvey says, Shall respect to Sid justice. Straight jacket material brain, says Gorilla Monsoon. Now, interesting thing I want to get out here into the wrestling zeitgeist. Man, this arena, the Hoosier Dome, if you will, was absolutely full of heel fans. I was, let's see, 92. I'm nine years old. I'm at the, I'm a fucking Hulkamaniac. I've got a Hulk Hogan, like, bright neon shirt on. Like, I wish I, wish I could show, share it with the rest of you because I was 1992 in a nutshell, all right? But I, as a kid, when we got there early and people are walking around with their big signs and stuff like that, I was so disheartened that there were heel fans. Like, there were lots of Ric Flair signs and lots of Sid Justice signs. And I was like, why? What's wrong with liking Hulk Hogan? Why don't they like a Hulkster? And it's interesting to me in retrospect because we do see a massive, like, right on the hard camera side, Sid is the master and ruler of the world. So, and now I understand and respect where these people are coming from, even just watching this quick five minutes. Like... Sid is absolutely the cure for the common Hulk Hogan problem. And I mean that. Like, I absolutely understand why smart fans or just older teenage fans would have been Sid Marks. It it makes complete sense to me, and I get why 
They were tired of the old vanilla babyface Hulk Hogan presentation, and, and I'm here for it. You know, I, I kind of love how, you know, ret- being able to look back in retrospect and age gives you a little bit of better understanding of things. I don't know. It's silly. We're just talking about professional wrestling, but I like it, and I like it a lot. Bobby it starts talking about how he heard Gorilla Monsoon talking to a reporter the other day, and Gorilla called Sid Justice Psycho Sid. And I just love that little breadcrumb. Now, folks, Sid Justice's awesome theme song ends. And I've got to apologize. But, man, and I mean this wholeheartedly, we are about to talk about one of the greatest moments in televised wrestling production history. Real American starts playing throughout the Hoosier Dome. Uh, We cut to the cameraman who's in the aisle, but he's near the steel steps. We're in his first person point of view, obviously, because he's the cameraman. And so the camera is walking up the aisle to the entrance, and Hulk Hogan emerges with an absolutely massive smile on his face. Now, this is kind of heartwarming because we know that Terry Bollea was about to take an extended absence. Maybe he knew he was coming back. Maybe he didn't know. I don't know. And I'm not here to wax poetic about a guy who ended up kind of being a prick in real life. But he is a human being. And this smile is real. And I understand that as a person who's performed and just as a human being. I understand this probably has to be an amazing emotional moment for him. Okay? The house lights in the Hoosier Dome dim. And you can, you can feel it and see it happen through the camera. And it just adds an extra layer of like, this is it. This is the main event presentation to the entire thing. Hogan starts the long walk. And it is indeed a long walk. We get a great shot of Sid Justice looking at Hulk Hogan in disgust. Hulk Hogan gets to the steps. He, walks them, he, he mounts the steps, walks up to the ring apron, gets to the center of the ring apron, points right at Sid Justice and does that famous Hulk Hogan, you. Hulk Hogan enters the ring through the ropes. Sid Justice takes advantage of this and attacks because, as we all know, attacking someone as they're entering or exiting the ring is a great heel tactic because their guard is down as they're, you know, bending over to get in through the ropes. As we see the first punch hit Hulk Hogan, the chorus of Real American starts to play. Hogan is visibly staggered from these punches. And we hear the song say, Fight for the rights of every man, as if telling the Hulkster why he can't be done, why he has to continue this fight. Sid whips Hogan into the ropes and then goes down and planks so Hogan can gain momentum more momentum, and Sid can hurl thunderbolts upon him as he returns. However, Hogan jumps over Sid and turns around. Sid gets up for defense. The lyrics to Real American say, Fight for your life. Hulk Hogan throws two hard punches, and Sid falls through the middle ropes. Sid, though, stands up on the apron, and the Hulkster goes over, spins him around, and pulls him backwards by his hair and his head, so his chest is fully exposed. 
right as the guitar solo of Real American before the last verse starts. So it's just all... I'm not going to do more, but you know what I'm talking about. Hogan cups the ears, looking for the fans' approval. They certainly give it. A big punch is delivered to the chest of Sid Justice. Sid goes down to his knees, gets back up. Hogan runs at him and hits a clothesline as Sid falls completely to the outside and runs away to confirm with the doctor. Hogan turns around and faces the camera and rips his shirt as the song tells us that the Hulkster has got to be a man and he can't let it slide. I am a real American. And it's that crazy last chorus where it's like, American! Fight phone all right! Yeah, and, and and he rips the shirt. The camera slowly pans backwards to a louder, a, a louder, a, a more wide shot. We can see the hard cam side and all the fans are on their feet and they're screaming. Hogan standing in the middle of the ring. He does the thing where he finger cups all four uh, sides of the ring in fast succession. Like, wah, 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 wah. Gorilla Monsoon doesn't so much yell, but says loudly enough so we know Hulkamania is alive and well. The crowd goes banana one more time for some ear cups. The song dims and the bell to begin the contest rings. Unbelievable. And I mean that wholeheartedly. Music is such a powerful element in visual storytelling. We talked about Star Wars earlier, and I'm just coming up with this example off the top of my head, but it's it's something that gets me every time. You know, when Luke Skywalker is is you know flying down the uh, oh god the the fucking crevice of the Death Star, what the hell is it called? The trench. When God, when Hulk, when when Luke Skywalker is doing the trench run in the Battle of Yavin Four at the end of Star Wars: A New Hope to blow up the Death Star, you know. He shoots the missile. You know, well, first of all, the music's intense, and then it dims and plays the force theme and use the force, Luke. The music is what's doing it. Now, everything is doing it, but without that music, it's not the same. He shoots the missiles. They go in. They fly from the Death Star. The timpani. Boom, 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 You know, and they start to fly away. Boom, 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 boom. So, obviously, I've made my point. The music adds so much to visual storytelling. I don't know if this was planned, but the happenstance that matches the lyrical components of the song with what is actually happening in the ring, it's a beautiful accident that happens sometimes in art. Now look, I am not going to die on the hill that professional wrestling should be regarded as high as other art forms. I don't know. Maybe it should. I'm not here to throw shade or anything like that. And I'm also not here to be made fun of for being a dude who's comparing this two to three minutes of professional wrestling from 1992 to like the goddamn Mona Lisa. Because I'm not. But, fuck, it's special. It's rare, it's special, and I'm nine years old all over again. But even if you're not nine years old, you can't deny the happy accident... That, would, that is the glorious storytelling of Hulk Hogan defending his career, his life, his country, his fans against the evils of Sid Justice while his theme music plays. <laughs> Longfellow couldn't have said it better. Actually, he probably could have. But 
Unfortunately, the judge has given me a look. Your Honor, what's the problem? What? That's inadmissible as evidence because it happened before the bell rang. Fuck! All right, now let's talk about the actual match and see what the verdict will be. Sid is still outside recovering from the musical assault of the Hulkster. Eventually, he comes back in and we get started proper. Now, the crowd is absolutely nuclear, okay? So this is theirs to lose, that being Hogan and Sid. All right, they have them in the palm of their hands at this point. Now, Sid strikes first, but unfortunately, all he does is kick, kick, and then like a face pull maneuver. Not exactly hot. You know, I would expect a Sid to sort of come in as this giant rage monster that tries to overpower Hogan by murdering him, um, but that's not the choice that was made, so whatever. Um, they just... These guys, it's clear they should have never slowed down, in my opinion. Another kick by Sid. And I get that he's angry that the crowd loves Hogan. But come on, man. I I don't see that you're actually angry. Like, I see you're, you're like, distraught. You're, like, telling the crowd to be quiet. But I feel like these kicks aren't really showing me how angry you are. Now, an unfortunate moment here at the get-go where they redo the spot from the musical battle where Sid whips Hogan into the ropes and Sid planks down, Hogan jumps over him, Sid stands up, and Hogan punches him out of the ring. I mean, they redo the whole thing uh, second by second, moment by moment, to the point that Sid even falls out of the ring, I believe even on the same side of the ring. And Sid takes a walk. However... It's you know it's clear as day that it's duplication to me with the eyes that I have on this thing, but the crowd is absolutely just loving it, and I kind of don't blame them, and I see where they're coming from. And and speaking of seeing where you're coming from, the way Sid's playing it now, I'm actually kind of starting to find it interesting. It's almost as if the Sid character, or at least the way that Sid is playing the Sid character, God forbid, how many layers of Inception are we going to get into on this thing, but hear me out before you think I'm crazy. It's like the Sid character doesn't actually believe his own bullshit. Like, it's like he, the way he's walking around outside the ring is like, oh my God, not only is he beating me, but everybody's going to find out I'm a fraud. Dr. Harvey, help me. And I'm not saying that to be silly. That's just kind of the vibe I'm getting. Like Sid's confidence is absolutely evaporated because he doesn't want to be exposed as a fraud. It's weird. It's interesting. I just, I don't know. It's something about watching the way that he's doing this. Uh, The idea of restarting this match is sound because Sid comes in and they sort of face off again. And again, the crowd is absolutely nuclear. Uh, The idea is sound, but the methodology chosen is a test of strength. So, yeah, I'm kind of on the fence about that decision. Before Hogan commits at a test of strength, he looks up to the sky, consults Jesus, and then he strangely rubs the ring ropes. But he does agree. And that's not a joke. That happens. Go back and watch it. Now, regardless of my thoughts or comments on what I said about the test of strength not being the best way to sort of get this thing restarted, let the record state that the crowd is still absolutely nuclear and they haven't stopped this entire fucking time. And that includes Hogan fans that are actually, that are either cheering for him when he's punching the few times that he has or when he's trying to fight back against Sid 
or the Sid fans when Sid is absolutely destroying Hogan on offense with those kicks I was talking about. The Sid fans are visible and they're interesting and kind of fun to see. It reminds me of like watching a, a match with Cena when he was hated because he was hated, hated, not hated because we love to hate him and we want to hate him and us hating him is showing him respect, if that makes sense. Uh, so I just kind of love seeing that happen organically when I was too young to understand what was actually happening. And we're in this text of, te- text. <laughs> we're in this test of strength, and you know what? It's not awful because it's not that long. Uh, Hogan does lose the initial test of strength confrontation, and Sid's not doing much to make it look like he's really, you know, leaning into it and putting all the pressure on him. So it's kind of eh. But then the crowd goes into overdrive to encourage the Hulkster to fight back. And fight back he does. He gets halfway up. And I was thinking to myself, don't go down, Hulk. Like, if I'm in the ring, I'm thinking you get back up and you get some offense in to keep them nuclear. But the workers inside the ring, the professionals, they go a different direction. Let's see if it pays off. Hogan does a second comeback. And the fans don't bite as hard. But they still bite. So, okay. We'll go with this story, Terry. Uh, During this whole thing, there is a fan who's not in the front row, but they're not too far back, and they're wearing a Washington football team jersey, uh, which is irrelevant, but it's a way to easily identify them. Uh, They're just so much fun to watch during this match because they're up and down, up and down, up and down. Hogan breaks free of the test of strength and hits a really big clothesline on Sid. And he starts to get a little bit of momentum. The crowd's nuclear. Good call for the story of the match. Harvey jumps up on the apron, distracts Hogan. And this allows Sid to come behind Hogan, kick him. And then when Hogan is in the center of the ring, Sid delivers a ridiculously awesome early 90s version of the choke slam. Now, I'm not saying all early 90s choke slams look like this. What I am saying is that tell me you're going to do a you're going to show me a choke slam from an era before the Undertaker did it as a regular transition move in his repertoire and I guarantee it probably doesn't look like the choke slam that you expect to see right now in the modern era. You've seen choke slams a thousand times. You know how they look. But I'm telling you, there's a, the dark, the chokeslam dark ages before Undertaker made it a, a normal thing to do all the time. But this one, however, doesn't look bad. It looks different, but don't let that, don't let that make you think it looks bad. This is not the Undertaker Hogan chokeslam from Judgment Day uh, 02, okay? I promise. It's one-handed, and Sid goes down with Hulk and lands on one knee, which also makes the move look more impactful but also puts Sid in the perfect position to do his on-one-knee, arms-out-stretch taunt, which he does. The brain fucking loses it for this choke slam in a way that he's like, he makes me believe that he believes Hogan is dead and he's never seen anything like this before. And to top it all off, Hogan does his cell where he's shaking on the ground and twitching. And Sid does do the one-knee pose, both to my side, where I'm sitting. He does my side first. Thank you very much. And a large contingent in the front row, in clear view of the hard camera, goes insane. And it's really fun to watch, knowing what I know now, as a fan who's somewhat understandable when you want to root for the heels. Now, Sid poses to the hard cam as well, 
As I'd mentioned, we get a fantastic cutaway of Harvey Whippleman giving him finger guns. Sid decides to pull the rock, or pull uh, the rock, however you want to put it. He walks over and talks to the camera. Like, it's fantastic. He, like, grabs the camera, looks into it, and starts having a conversation. He says, where I'm from, we call it do unto others as they would do unto you. But do it first. And this whole post-chokeslam sequence is super entertaining. Objection. Whoa. Counselor, what the... What, what, what's the problem? What did I say? What did I do? My objection is this. Yes, everything post-chokeslam has been awesome. But I feel like if you want to look at this from a perspective of it's important to win... I feel like you could you just missed your shot to pin Hulk Hogan at WrestleMania, you know? I mean, cuz cuz Hogan's still shaking dead, twitching even after, you know, uh Sid delivers his soliloquy, okay? So, I don't know. I just I don't know. I'm not in a position to say. Now, as Sid walks back over to resume the match and grab the Hulkster, there are two fans in the pretty much front row who are doing the delete symbol at him. Now, I don't know if they're supporting the Sinister or if they're angry at his violent choke slam, but they're literally, it's a man and a woman. I believe they're right next to each other, arm to arm, and they're doing the delete in opposite directions of one another. You know, the delete, delete. Well, I'm doing the hand. Th- you, you can't see me, though, can you? I forget it's a podcast. <laughs> My bad. <laughs> but they are doing it. Now, Sid decides to follow up from this God shattering choke slam, okay, uh, by kicking Hogan a few times. All right, well, it is Sid. (laughs) And then Hulk eventually falls outside the ring. Now, Harvey is talking to the ref, wondering why he's not counting faster, but he's not actually doing it for that purpose. (laughs) He's actually doing it so Sid can hit the Hulkster with his doctor's bag. And you know what? I'm into this. This is kind of a weak foreign object, I will say. I want to make that very clear. But this is a great time in the match for Sid to start cheating because the Hogan fans are in a frenzy wanting to get Hogan to come back from the the killer chokeslam, which is unlike anything they'd ever seen. And the Sid fans, who are already all riled up because the heel is winning, are just going to get into it even more. And then the Hogan fans are going to want to counter that and then rinse, repeat, and rinse, repeat. And we're yelling and screaming and yelling and screaming, but we're yelling and screaming because we're entertained. And I... Look, they're not doing anything like grand, you know, or anything that I wouldn't say isn't just sort of, I don't want to say it's obvious, but like, I know they're not doing crazy stuff, but these guys know what they're doing. I'm sorry. They do. They know what they're doing. Uh, They go back inside. This is pretty much my big eh with the match. Even after I just said these guys knows what they're, knows what they're know what they're doing, I can still learn how to speak English. Sid does a nerve hold. Here's how I know they know what they're doing. The crowd is still willing to cheer for Hogan through the entire nerve hold. Now this nerve hold comes in two sequences. The first sequence is about thirty to thirty-two seconds, and the crowd's nuclear. 
Sequence two begins, and this is the sequence that involves Hogan, you know, sort of getting a little more loose and getting a little more comfortable. And Sid needs to get a little more comfortable too. And Sid gets down on two knees, and Hogan is basically just taking a nap on Sid's knee. All right, this sequence, you know, it's a, a little bit longer than the first sequence. Dave slash Earl slash I don't know which one Hebner goes in for the arm drops. Of course, the crowd goes insane when Hogan's arm doesn't drop for the third time. Uh, Sid cuts off this fire-up sequence with the sidewalk slam or vicious side suplex, according to Gorilla Monsoon. Sid issues the last rites and hits the powerbomb. Now, this is interesting. It's an interesting powerbomb. Sid goes down for the powerbomb with Hogan. He drops to his knees. Now, that's not Sid's powerbomb, and that's certainly not what he was doing on his jobber death squad, you know, run up into WrestleMania. I would imagine he's doing this to protect the company's investment, uh, but it does not make Sid look dominant, and this has got to piss off the Sid heel fans, I believe, probably, and maybe make them less interested. I don't know. Um Plus, I can already hear Terry in the back. Hey, Sid, brother, yeah. All right, we ready to do this? Hey, look, brother, I'm not going up for that power bomb if you're not coming down with me, dude. All right? I got to go make rough. I got to go with Brooke. And I got to go make my new movie, Rough Stuff, according to Coliseum Home Video clip that I filmed for WrestleMania 8, dude, at the WrestleMania Brunch Biceps, dude. Yeah, I'm making my movie called Rough Stuff. It would later be, of course, known as Mr. Nanny. But don't, don't, don't kid yourself, folks. If you watch the Coliseum home video version, he definitely says, Ah, oh, I'm getting ready to go with Brooke on the set of my new movie, Rough Stuff, dude. And I'll be back after that. Not that that's any sort of revelation. You could just fucking Google Mr. Nanny and see that it was called Rough Stuff. But I knew that before the Internet Movie Database told me it was some trivia. I just know that off the top of my head from watching the Coliseum home video. Uh, spoiler alert. Hogan hawks up. <laughs> Um, after the, the, you know, the two count from the power bomb. Now this is interesting. Normally you would think I would say this is business exposing, but hear me out. As during the Hulk up sequence, Sid eats two turnbuckles to the face and a big boot. During each one of these sequences, the Sid, Sid crosses center ring when Hogan's either dragging him to the turnbuckle or whipping him into the ropes for the big boot. Each time, Sid makes sure to check the entrance. We know he's looking for Papa Shango. He's trying to make sure the queue has been hit because we're coming up for the time where Shango needs to lunge into the ring and, you know, break up the pin. So where are you? And I want to present that as evidence, not that it's a bad match, but evidence that I know I know Sid gets a bad rap for kicking out here in a second, but Sid is the one in the match I don't know if he's communicated this to Hulk or not, but, you know, in a, if you're in a play and someone forgets their lines, you can't just stop the show, all right? So, you know, if Sean goes... Now, granted, you would say, well, Harvey Whippleman, if he saw Sean go wasn't there, should have dove in the ring. Okay, that's fine. But, I'm you know, this evidence is between Hulk and Sid right now. Harvey Whippleman, whatever. We'll leave him out. But Sid's just trying to do what he can. Because it's going to look really stupid if he doesn't kick out and the ref stops counting before three. Uh, You know, I don't know. Plus, the owner, the promoter, wants it to end by DQ. So you've got to do what you can to protect the owner's creative vision because uh, 
You work for them. All right, I've said my piece about it. Leg drop, one, two, Sid kicks out. Harvey stands on the ring apron and then gets tossed by Hogan, and for some reason the bell rings. I guess throwing your opponent's manager is grounds for to get them disqualified. I don't know. It's always been a weak finish. Um, normally, that's where I would stop, and that is where I'm going to stop when I render my verdict. I promise. I'm not letting the beginning or ending influence the verdict. We get a great behind-the-shoulder view of Papa Shango running out to the ring. And the way that he has like his arms stretched out, and the, he's kind of going slow and waddling. And to cap it all off, Gorilla on commentary goes, Papa Shango, where's he going? I believe that the Papa Shango character may indeed be lost. Because <laughs> he doesn't really belong here with these two other characters, and I just feel like he's lost because he's late. It's tremendous. <laughs> of course, they beat up Hogan. The Warriors music hits. Uh, Warrior sprints down the aisle. It's the ultimate warrior! We get the distraught Bobby the Brain Heenan who doesn't know what's happening. He can't hear you, Monsoon, of course. And for some cosmic amazing reason, the Warrior, much like Hogan before him, is completely in sync with his music. He's His feet are hitting the ground with the drums of the Warrior theme. He sprints dives in, and he pumps his arm like three times with the drums of his music, and then he breaks into his attack sequence. It's pr- I, I just don't know. Like, look, it's just a man running down a ring and then hitting another guy. It, it doesn't sound glorious when you think about what it is, but for some crazy cosmic reason, it's perfect. I don't know how to describe it. Uh, eventually, the heels, you know, leave and abscond the day ruined for them and uh you know the good guys pose um there's a fantastic moment where hogan calls for a sign to be brought into the ring and it's a sign that someone's had in the first couple rows that says bring back the warrior i think it's a golden call from hogan to get it and flash it in the ring but in the build-up to this and around this you kind of get to watch hulk hogan direct jim helwig in the ring and it's very, like, I just found it insanely interesting as a side note. Like, I love sort of watching Hogan do his thing because he's clearly the master at the time. And I love him just giving stage direction to Warrior and sort of ordering him into play. Not, and I don't say ordering like he's being a dick. It's just like he's directing. He's a, he's a director, you know? And obviously, I think, it, you know, you probably picked up through my communications. I, I enjoy director film directors, and so I like watching Hogan direct. It's fun for me. Their interactions, though, are priceless, you know, because they have to just mime things real loud. And Hogan's like, whoa, dude, you saved me. And the warrior's like, I did, with his warrior pumps into the air. And then Hogan's kind of looking around like, oh, I didn't get the one, two, three, but what do you want to do, dude? And warrior's like, I don't know, pose? But he doesn't say, I don't know, pose. He just sort of makes a little pose motion and shrugs like, you want to pose? And Hogan's like, yeah, dude, let's pose. Oh, God. I love it so much. And the watching the warrior try to do Hogan's ear cups is amazing. Eventually, the pyro hits and blocks my real-life view of the show. And the, the whole pay-per-view goes off the air. All right. So, I appreciate you letting me lean into that one. Obviously, it's got some sentimental value. But I'm taking all that away because keep in mind, I haven't watched this match in a very long time. I would say maybe even since I've had kids which is like 12 years, all right? 
And I am going to render a verdict on the match and the match only, and then I'm going to make a statement. I see throughout my notes that there are about two to three, maybe even four minutes of this match that are not well spent. The match is only 12 minutes, however. So that's a pretty damn good ratio, all things considered. It is the main event of a WrestleMania, and that is a huge stage. You absolutely have to deliver. And I feel like the people in this audience got what they wanted. And I, honestly, and I even said this in my when I saved that match from that AWA Super Clash. Like, you got to know your audience. These guys clearly did. And that's what their performance is. It's getting over the necessary narrative elements that get to a finish that fulfill the needs of the audience, but also to a greater extent the promoter's overall creative intent. Because after all, you work for them and you work for the fans. You know, I'm not trying to say that's not important, but you know, you're gone out, you go out there, you're asked to deliver a match that ends in this way because that's how the story will continue or not continue, etc., etc. But you have to make it entertaining. And that is what Sid, Justice, I always forget to call him Justice, and Hulk Hogan did. I am absolutely finding this match not guilty, and I'm dropping all charges, and I'm only considering the bell to bell for that. Negative two, are you fucking kidding me? No. No, it, it doesn't move the world in a different direction, okay? It doesn't change the art. But even bell to bell, it's not negative two. Now, here's my statement. WrestleMania 8 has often been spoken about uh, in a way that sort of props the show upwards by using the Intercontinental and World Championship matches as examples. And then it's kind of like, well, the back half sucks. Um, Yes, the tag match is awful. It's really bad. Tatanka and Rick Martel's four minutes and 19 seconds. I checked. And the rocket and the alligator man is a minute and 19 seconds. So the final, I think it's like 28. Let's just round up. Fuck it. Let's call it a half hour of this pay-per-view is everything that I've talked about on this show. So I'm going to go on a limb. And the opener is not awful. And Undertaker Jake is at least historical. You get to see Trust Me Jake at WrestleMania. Okay. And Ray Combs? Come on. I, no, don't get, it's just a survey. Don't get mad at me for liking the Ray Combs part. It's just what the survey says. And this last 30 minutes should become a larger part of the discussion about WrestleMania 8 and how it should be ranked in the pantheon of listing of WrestleManias and not in a way that's used as an excuse to keep WrestleMania 8 lower, but as a reason to actually start propping it up higher. And that ends my statement. And that means it also ends this episode of Starman. It was a fun journey. It took me back. And I absolutely did not think I would enjoy the Hogan Sid stuff as much as I did. I knew that the musical sequence was something that I remembered. But remembering it being that perfect and harmonious. And then the match being not bad. And then the ending sequence being strong as well. I gotta say, this episode of Starman, I think we can end it the best way I possibly know how with one of my favorite phrases from wrestling-related paraphernalia, uh, wrestling for the Nintendo Entertainment System, or pro wrestling, I think the game is called, and leave you with the quote, 
of what shit the best wrestler in the game a dude who's actually named Starman who's wearing a fucking star lucha mask and when you win with Starman he simply says a winner is you